You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Puisque vous avez un passeport diplomatique, il m'est impossible de fouiller dans vos bagages. Mais t'as fait semblant. Mais comment semblant J'ai besoin d'un prétexte pour rester ici. Demandez-moi si. J'ai des cigares. Vous avez des cigares Comment Vous avez des cigares Plus fort, plus fort. Je voudrais que cette dame m'entende. Vous avez des cigares Oui, non. Euh, S'il y en a, comptez-les. Comptez, comptez, comptez. Un, deux, trois. Ce que vous voulez, contrôlez. Vous pas ça nous, Suzanne, qu'on soit obligé de donner de l'argent à la frontière pour des choses qui sont destinées à faire plaisir. Ah, les tickets, c'est moi qui les ai. Voilà, merci, madame. Monsieur, monsieur, s'il vous plaît, votre passeport. Je ne veux pas partir, je vais seulement... J'ai une chose importante à dire à cette dame. Je regrette, monsieur, mais c'est impossible. Mais je suis diplomate. Oui, on dit ça. C'est facile. Votre passeport. Ah, j'ai dû le laisser. Aviste oui au passeport. Dites, avez-vous mon passeport Non, monsieur. Mon passeport, s'il vous plaît. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Ken Stanley. Hi, Mike. Great to be back. Also back with us this week is Ms. Paula Guthett. Hi, Mike. This week we're discussing the 1953 from Max Ophel's The Earrings of Madame De. The film revolves around a pair of earrings, the titular woman who owned them, the man who gave them to her, and the man who gives them to her again. We'll be getting into spoilers on this episode, so if you haven't seen The Earrings of Madame De, please turn us off and come back later. We will still be here. So, Ken, when was the first time you saw the film, and what did you think, sir? I saw the film for the first time all the way through 10 days ago, but it had been on my must-see list for about 45 years. When I was first getting interested in a film... I read about film as much as I saw it, and Andrew Sarris was one of the first people I read, and he had always said that he thought it was the greatest film ever made. But at the time, you know, I was like 15, 16 at the time, it just didn't on the surface appeal to me at that age yet. You know, I was like something that I kept putting off because I really didn't appeal to me. But I finally saw it because I, you know, felt like I should. So, and, but that was very recently. How about you, Paula? I saw it for the first time a few years ago, maybe three or four years ago. Um, the way I see most older films on TCM, interestingly enough, as we speak, Shaw Boyer is the star of the month on that channel. I didn't get it. Like, I was like, wow, this is kind of boring. I might have been tired. And then the second time I watched it, I was like, wow, this is like one of the most intricate ornate features I've ever seen. It's very much on the surface is one thing underneath is another, like the lives of the characters. So, you know, they're going through this stuff. They're having conversations, they're dancing, but everything means something more. And it took me a minute to realize that. Yeah. You could really look at this as a real simple story like the way that i had it boiled down is just like following this pair of earrings that goes from one person to another and isn't that amusing or ironic at different times 
But yeah, this really, if you start to peel it back, it's just like watching our main character, watching Madame De and the way that she changes from the beginning to the end, and especially to see her two scenes at the jewelry shop and just the difference between those. Wow. And to your point, Ken, I mean, yeah, 15, 16 years old. I think that you've had to have had your heart broken at least once or twice to be able to even begin to appreciate a film like this. Most definitely. Uh, And I think of the earrings as kind of like a MacGuffin. It becomes a talisman over the course of the of the film, and there's a lot of fetish, fetishizing going on, and that's one aspect of it. But yeah, it did help having uh, a lot more experience and becoming a little more mature, hopefully, to, to really appreciate the film. And I do. I certainly do. Paula, when you went back and saw this the second time, maybe the third time, when however many times you've seen it, not as boring as the first time? No, no, not as boring at at all. You really get drawn in when you're ready for it. I think it draws you in. And I started to become fascinated by how many mirrors there are in it. You first see her in a mirror. And there's so, so many mirrors, almost every scene. And also staircases coming up, going down. And then there's this incredible moving camera that I have since learned is a trademark of Ovals. Uh, I don't think anyone else was doing camera movement of this kind at this time. Maybe they were. I could be wrong. But it's constantly moving. And it's in the dance scenes, I'm like, that's what this whole movie is. It's like a dance. This The camera is moving and it's changing point of view. Sometimes you're getting, you're kind of looking over Madame's shoulder. Sometimes you're seeing her from Donati's point of view, I'd say less so of the general. His point of view is maybe less represented, but it's always moving. It's always, I wonder how many takes they did. These are long, long, long takes. How many times did he have to go through this? Like the nearest thing I can think of that's like it is something like Rope or Under Capricorn, where Hitchcock had these special sets built where the walls moved in and out so that he could get... Theoretically, rope is just one long take. I just really wonder how many times he made them do it. It's like you would have to stop and start all over again. But then when something's really happening, it's quick, shorter shots, quick cuts. The moving camera is what draws me in. It becomes part of the dance. Like, for example, during the uh, dance montage sequence, it's Mm -hmm. moving along and it's flowing and it's so it's just so graceful and it pulls you in and you feel like almost like you're dancing with the couple as they dance because of of the way that the camera keeps moving. And Ophos came from theater. He did, uh, he was a theater director in Vienna before he started in movies. And that's something that's fundamental in theater is the idea that motion equals emotion. It's very important in a Mm -hmm. theater to play to the back seats, you have to have the characters moving because that in some way simulates emotion. And so maybe he puts that into the idea of the camera moving as well, that motion equals emotion. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the plot here, because before we even get to that dance montage, which is one of the most standout moments of this film, which is filled with standout moments. It's like there are, so many amazing scenes, so many amazing lines, so many great performances. I mean, 
the a whole idea of this moving camera and just watching the extras in the background and foreground. I mean, this, yeah, it's this whole movie is a dance. And there's a dance going on between our main characters, between uh, the Contessa, uh, Madame Du, uh, played by Danielle Dario, and then uh, the general, Andre De. And when we're doing this thing, so people who maybe haven't seen this film before, there's a conceit to the film where it's the earrings of Madame De and then dot, dot, dot. Like, we never hear her last name. Like, even the, the French title of the film is just Madame De. So it's this kind of thing. It's almost, you know, it's, it's a much better conceit than Beatrix Kiddo from Kill Bill, like where we didn't hear her last name, right? There's no reason why we didn't hear her last name. In this one, there's no reason why we don't hear Madame Du's last name, but it's almost like she's a stand-in for something bigger by us not having a last name to pin to her. But it's just a thing that happens in the film. I think it's tied to, um, in... 18th, 19th century literature sort of names have been changed to protect the not-so-innocent. Scandal. They would, almost like a blind item, where it's like, which general's wife is, you know, seeing a random dude she met at customs? Or they do it sometimes even in English literature uh, where they blank out places. I'm thinking of in Arthur Conan Doyle in some of the Sherlock Holmes stories, it was like, well, we went down to blank it sort of a, gives it like an anonymous thing. But then at the same time, I think you're right that it, it forces you to think of them as almost archetypes. They represent something bigger than just this one family there. They become emblematic of society. And luckily it never gets too cutesy or annoying. Like they don't bleep out the last name or, you know, black out like a business card or something. It's very clever how in the place card, it's kind of obscured. You know, by the napkin or what have you, or it's well done. And I think there's the moment when there's a cannon going off. They almost say the general's last name, but the can- cannon obscures it. So it's it's done well, and it's not a gimmick for the film, luckily. No, that could be annoying, but it is not. Going back to what you were talking about, Paula, at the very beginning of the film, this is over Madame's shoulder, and we're seeing her go through her stuff and seeing all of the material goods that mean so much to her, like seeing her her furs, and she says, I'd rather die than give up my furs, and all of these things that mean so much to her, and then going through her jewelry box until she finally figures out, I'm going to sell these earrings. And she needs money. We're not exactly sure why she needs money, because it seems like she's living a very lavish lifestyle, but she's kind of living beyond her means, and I don't think she necessarily wants to tell her husband about that. There's a lot of things that she doesn't want her to tell her husband. I always assumed it was gambling. But you're never, you never see it. We're never told really why. Gambling would kind of make sense, because gambling does play a big role in the film. I don't think we ever see her gambling, though. No, no. We see the general's mistress gambling, but we don't see her. But those earrings having the, the hearts and the diamonds to them, which will come back up when her fortune teller is telling her fortune. And just, again, with the card motif with the hearts and diamonds is pretty awesome. When we first see her in the... I guess you'd call it a walk-in closet. She's looking at all her stuff. She's a bauble herself. You know, she's kind of a trophy wife. So I think when she's looking at all the stuff, you can't help but feel, you know, she's a jewel as well. She's an ornament as well. 
in this society. She thinks she's not in an equal relationship, but I think she's like sort of like, you do your thing and I'll do mine and it's okay. This is at the beginning of the movie where they're on these, you know, they're on a separate track and they're both happy with it. Like, it's okay. Like, it's sort of like a bargain has been, you know, that's the deal. I'm talking about Lamore. I'm talking about what they call nowadays open marriage. It does seem yeah. like what she's doing there at the very beginning, looking through her stuff and finding something that she can sell. And then she walks downstairs and says, before she leaves to the butler, she says, uh, tell Andre something vague, mm-hmm. you know. It gives the impression that it's not the first time she's done something like this. And once again, it goes back to your point, Paula, of they've settled into something that's agreeable to both of them. I'm so sure she knows about the mistress. She m- might. Or if she did even, it probably wouldn't bother her that much. It, that's yeah, the impression you get. Yeah. The general talks about how you know she has these suitors and i'm just like well that's a weird word to use when you're married to somebody you know at first i thought they were an item and then when he says you know my wife i was like oh they are married okay i thought that he was again you know kind of like you know uh, general perone and here's uh, uh ava perone but before they're married she gets around and he's gonna finally take her off the market but he knows that she's had this long history but no no they're married I was struck when she used the word vague when I watched the film a second time, because it seems to me that that perfectly that word sums up kind of like everyone's relationship to each other up to a certain point in the film when things get less vague. We're vaguely married. They're vaguely married. She's vaguely flirting with people in a in a vague manner. And it's all pretty vague. (laughs) Even tells Donati, he's like, my wife is a flirt. And I'm wondering if at that point he's kind of already sniffing out Donati to be like, don't get your heart broken. This guy looks serious. I better give my heads up. So she goes to the jewelers and talks him into, the again, a huge ordeal. Actually, before she goes to the jewelers, she goes to the church and prays to her saint, uh, St. Genevieve. And lights a candle, you know, just kind of goes in there. Uh, I love there's a guy already in there praying and that he checks out her ass when she's walking out. (laughs) Right. (laughs) She's always on display, you know. We're always looking at her through through windows and through, you know, she's always framed. A lot of the time she's framed. Yeah, it also helps to set up difference between the general and uh, Louise, as she's called. The cards, the going to the church, there's kind of like, she's more of an instinctive person who at one point says something like, uh, when she takes the money from the jeweler, uh, says the amount that he gives her, he says, I think it's within reason, and she says something like, I wouldn't know about reason, or something to that that effect. Mm -hmm. So she kind of lives her lives her mind on her instincts and her feelings and her emotions and superstition a little bit superstition yeah whereas the general is he's a soldier that's duty he's logical pragmatic and there is a distinct difference there yeah he's more super ego and she's way more id the third part of that would be the ego coming into the equation with uh the sika as donati but that that takes a little while to get to I love 
the whole scene with the jewelers and to your point, Paula, the staircases, the staircase that is in constant motion in the Madame and General's house, and then that spiral staircase in the jeweler's place uh, that we really get displayed when he's um, the jeweler is kind of badgering his, I guess it's his nephew, like, you know, don't forget my cane, don't forget my hat, don't forget my coat. And the guy keeps going like halfway down, halfway up. <laughs> How many times did he have to do that? I just wonder. I really wonder, like, you know, and he must have built that must have been built with a way for the camera to go up and down. I just I just wonder technically how they did it. Oh, and that poor kid. If they did 20 takes of that. Right. Some of these takes reminded me of like uh, the the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover, like going through the restaurant. I was going to say the same thing. It reminded me because that was the last time I was on the projection booth. We talked about that film. And once again, it was a man who was perceived to be a powerful guy, the thief, his wife, and her lover. And the tracking shots, but you could not find two more dissimilar films in sensibility than those two. And yet they're roughly about the same kind of, has a similar story. Andrew Sarah said about Ophel's tracking shots is that for him, they represented the relentless nature of time, that time is tyrannical. It keeps going, it keeps going, and that's why the camera keeps moving, moving, moving. And I think that in Cook, Thief, Wife, Lover, the tracking shots had more to do with space because they would track from the kitchen into the dining room and just slide along. And so it seemed to me it was just like a way to, to contrast spaces. But aside from that, that I was thinking about that myself, the, the idea of the elaborate tracking shots in those two films and the similar plot lines almost. I love that she has her whole fainting thing uh, first show up at the jewelers and that you can tell right off that her faint is just a ploy. You know, just everything that she says, everything that she does feels so calculated in order to try to get this guy to buy her jewels and give her, what is it, 20,000 francs. And then you can tell when she faints later, it's 100% for real. The more she faints in the film, the more real they become. The ball is in motion. The, the earrings are out of her hands. And then she makes up this whole lie later on when she and the general, who we finally meet at this point, go out to the opera. And it's this whole, oh my gosh, I lost my earrings. What happened? And then... <laughs> I mean, this is where we get almost into more like an Ernst Lubitsch territory. Like with, it's almost like a screwball. Oh, it's yeah. a fun, it's a funny sequence. It really is. It is great. I mean, those two doormen who keep opening up the doors for the general. It's just mm-hmm. well, one of them says at one point that he's not going to get up anymore, but he's bound by his uniform. He's bound by duty to, and he so he does. <laughs> And the general going out and searching the carriage and, and the way I like the moment later on where the uh, he's kind of uh, offended uh, a guy because he apparently gave his wife a sidelong glance. And uh, he's just, well, tell your uh, tell him to quit marrying beautiful women or quit going out with beautiful women. He's <laughs> fast on his feet. Boyer is just so good in this. And I have to admit. I first knew of Charles Boyer just because of the caricature that he became, the whole come with me to the Casbah thing that he would do. Pepe Le Pew. He was the, mo- he was the, the model, model for Pepe Le Pew because he was in Pepe Le Moco. Yeah. 
Pepe Lamoco and then Algiers was the Yes. Shawboy is not really like one of my favorite actors. Honestly, I think this is one of his better movies, and I think it goes back, honestly, to Gaslight. Do you hate him for Gaslight? <laughs> I, well, her name is Paula. Ingrid Bergman's character's name is the same as mine. So and he was gaslighting you, uh, it's, me- well, metaphorically. He is a big-time creep in that movie. He really excels at portraying men who are at the least egotistical and immature and at the worst sort of suave villains. Well, movies you know need I mean? suave villains from time to time. My first like exposure to him was as a bad dude. So <laughs> it's taken me a minute. I just saw this film. He's in a uh, French film, Lilium, and he's not a good person in it. And he's so good at it. I mostly knew him from I Love Lucy when there was that whole story arc of Lucy going out to Hollywood and she meets Charles Boyer but doesn't think that it's him and starts to give him lessons on how to act more like Charles Boyer. Charles Boyer doesn't kiss like that. When you kiss a woman's hand, put some schmaltz into it. Silent schmaltz. Honestly, I don't know how you ever make a living as an actor. I often wonder myself. Well, for one thing, don't just sit there like a bump on the log. Sit up, sit up. Try to look romantic, like Boyer. All right, and uh, how does your Boyer look romantic? Well, for one thing, he gets an expression on his face like he just walked into the grand ballroom and smelled cauliflower cooking. I see. Like that. Now tell me you like me. Madame Ricardo, I like you very much. No, no, no. The voice, the voice. When Boyer is being romantic, he doesn't just talk, he he growls. He says, ah, Lucy, I like you. Is that the way he sounds? Yes. Well, I'm surprised he got as far as he did. The three leads between between them, between De Sica, who is an Italian matinee idol. Which and I act- never realized. No, until me, yeah. I never knew he acted until oh, this movie. Started, like, what, 100 started, films? Oh, 160 films as an actor, yeah. And it was primarily in Italian film in the 30s he started. And then he directed The Bicycle Thief and Umberto D and... Shoeshine and, yeah. <laughs> and da- Danielle Durier was in 140 films. So between the three of them, you got, like... Four hundred of water in the bridge. Yeah, yeah. She just passed last year. She was a hundred years old. She passed in October of 2017, and I, I wasn't even really aware. Of, I mean, I've I've seen twentieth of her work, and I think she is amazing. Uh, she was in Mike. You remember uh, talking about Umbrellas of Sherborg? She was in the follow-up film, Young Girls of Russia. Young Girls, yep. She was the only character. She was the only actor in that film who actually did all of her own singing, and she she played the Dorley. She was a singing star in the sixties. She did her concerts. She was the Dorleac sisters, Catherine Deneuve and Francoise Dorleac. She played their mother in in that film, and it's one of my favorites. 
And she was still acting all the way up till the end. She was, uh, she did a voice in Parasopolis, which I'm sure that all three of us have seen. She was in Eight Women. I mean, she was in movies. I was just going to say, shout out to Francoise Ozan. We thought she, she was as an actress to, to French film what Jean Gabin was as an actor in French films, more or less. Or at least I perceive her that way. Everybody gives a great performance in this, but she's the one. She's the dynamic character, and she's the one where we get these echoing scenes. You know, the, I mentioned the jewels at the beginning, the jewels at the end. There's a candle scene at the beginning. There's a candle scene at the end. Yeah, it's just amazing to see the transformation because she is, at best, at the beginning of this film, she is completely frivolous, and she is just about herself making up these lies to her husband, you know, oh, I lost these earrings. It becomes this whole big thing. Like it's so big that it gets reported in the newspaper the next day that there was a burglary at the opera, but she just doesn't care. She just, she wants her money. She wants what she wants. And it's just all about her at the beginning of the film. And then she makes this amazing transformation through it. I agree completely. And I, this is kind of a stray thought, but when the jeweler returns the earrings to the general. I was expecting him to go and get angry with her. Right. Me too. And that doesn't happen. And then all of a sudden he's seen off his mistress. I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. For whatever reason, I didn't expect him to have one. But of course he does. You know, of course he does. And then her name is Lola. And I always think that somehow she went off and became Lola Montez. Me too. I mean, yes. it didn't happen. But it, for whatever reason, I, I feel like these movies are almost like sequels or something. I don't know. It, it's not true. It, it isn't like that. But they're like spiritual twins or something. I saw something. I read something somewhere where he mentioned all the main female characters in Ophel's films. Their names started with L. It's Louise, Lola. And uh, a list of three or four others. I can't remember exactly what they were right now. Um, Lisa in Letter from an Unknown Woman. Oh, yeah. When I'm trying to remember, there was talking about echoes between his films. Uh, I want to say that the end of the film, and I know I'm jumping ahead, but I think the end of the film was actually kind of a reinterpretation of... uh, Libeli, yes. Libeli, yeah. So he, he was kind of... I don't want to say plagiarizing himself, but he definitely was still working through those themes. And as a character says in either La Ronde or um, Le Plaisir, there are always soldiers. Soldiers crop up pretty often in his Mm -hmm. films. Yeah, interestingly enough, in the source material, the character, the general, wasn't a general. Like, the husband was not a military guy. He was a count, but he was not also a general. And there's a that's an extra layer that got added in to make him extra logical and extra reasonable and extra male <laughs> against her intuitive and superstitious and malleable. Well, that even adds a little bit then, too, because of the tension that we'll get later on with the general versus the diplomats, the military versus diplomacy. And so there's that whole thing, too. Like, you know, oh, if we had better diplomacy, we wouldn't need soldiers. And obviously, that's a huge insult. So I would I would use my glove and smack someone in the face if someone said that to me. After 
It's been uh, noted in the newspaper that the earrings went missing and there's a suspected theft. And Boye and Dario, they're in their bedchambers. And it's some interesting things to point out there, I think. the For one thing, they have separate beds. Oh, yeah. Across the hall. It's not even like across to each other. Separate rooms. Uh, separate rooms. And I don't know if you guys caught it. I suspect you probably did that. In a chair next to the uh, the general's bed, there's a sword, but there's also his suit. It's like an empty suit hanging <laughs> hanging over a, a chair or something. So I like I like the idea of suggesting that he's an empty suit. That when you take that suit off, take off his designation as a general, there really isn't much there. And the sword right next to it, you know, it's a phallic symbol. It's not on the bed. <laughs> like he needs to exert control over her at all times. How about that little moment of uh, control when she apologizes and he's like, what'd you say? And, and she says it again. And again, he's like, oh, I still didn't hear you. And so she has to yell, I'm sorry, three times. That scene seems to me like the most kind of satisfaction that he can actually get is kind of getting the feeling that she's squirming in a way. It's like he loves listening to her elaborate on her lies. Dig in deeper, yeah. Because he knows better, and it's a psychological kind of control. He's kind of, he's codependent, really, when it comes down to it. But those are, for a codependent person, those are the only real satisfactions you can get. He makes Donati apologize twice, too. She's deluding him, and he's deluding himself. Yes. And then he has this whole sort of thing where he claims deafness because of the guns. You know, he has his own little racket, too. She has hers and he has his. And it's not really a problem until he realizes she's falling in love with the naughty. And she realizes that she's in love with the naughty. The way that he, the general, gets rid of Lola, she really seems, Lola seems much more upset about it than he does. He's just so blasé. Cold is the right word. Definitely the right word. And, like, him just happened to have those earrings in his possession at that moment. I mean, I don't think there's any forethought that he was going to give those to his mistress. That it was more like a, like a party gift. Tell her what she wants, Jean. He kind of turns away and he's like, Oh yeah, I forgot. Here you go. So obviously the earrings were just so important to both of them. Not, they didn't mean anything to her. She pawned them. And then obviously they didn't mean that much to him. Because he goes and gives them away to his departing mistress. Not a current mistress, a soon-to-be former mistress. And the way he kind of sabotages her by saying, like, oh, number 13, that's lucky. Because 13's on her carriage number. And then that she bets everything on 13. Not once, but twice! It looks lit up. Oh, yeah. Yes, uh, there is a light on there. But roulette, you know, <laughs> I mean, right. no. putting everything on one number on roulette. You got to listen to Wesley Snipes on that. Sally, you ever play roulette? On occasion. Well, let me give you a word of advice. Always bet on black. She got a 50-50 chance. Exactly. She's nowhere near that. And then, yeah, to have the earrings then show up in the jewelry cabinet the the case you know here's a special deal after they move from person to person again and then that 
beautiful shot of those earrings in the suitcase and the camera pulling back. And now we're introduced to Baron Fabrizio Donati, played by Vittorio De Sica, who, yeah, to your point earlier, very handsome guy. I never pictured De Sica in my head for whatever reason, and I only knew of him as a director, never thought of him as this matinee idol. And my goodness, is he amazing in this movie. Very charismatic and charming, debonair and suave. And yeah, it's a terrific performance. And he's a great screen presence. I want to see some of his older movies now. I have had for a while, but now since I really, really watched this to do this episode, I really want to go back and see as much of his work as I can. I don't know how possible that is, but. As an actor? actor. As an actor. Yeah, I've seen a few of his films as a director. Nothing like all of his, but you know, the Bicycle Thief, Umberto D. If you're not feeling 100 percent happy, I would either of those. Oh, stay films. stay uh, away from. There is a I, film, his film Shoeshine, which came before Bicycle Thieves, and to me, of his neorealist films that he directed, it just slays me so much. I mean, like I, I get more worked up over that then it's even more pathetic it's even more horrifying uh you know sad and yeah the uh, older i get the tragic. more horrifying uh umberto d is is oh yeah <laughs> whew, like i can i can wow. relate to it yeah <laughs> oh, for sure and you know in this country there's not much of a safety net we're very close to you know it's really easy to lose everything so uh, the 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 scene where uh the Donati character is introduced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It parallels when she's going through her stuff and she opened up the jewelry box and there was exactly. So yes, there's a suitcase. And that's why I get is that he, he introduces himself in the film. Excuse me. He introduces himself and you can just tell immediately that they're closer in spirit that right. the Donati character, cause he, he's talks to the, one of the inspection people there and says, uh, you know, talk about something, talk loud. You know, he wants to draw attention to himself. And so by using a deception, he's trying to yeah. get attention and stuff. So mm-hmm. that right automatically puts him like gives you the idea that he is the same similar type of spirit than hers, mm-hmm. that he'll use deception to, to get attention. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just think it's pretty charming. And the whole thing, the one shot, once again, it's an elaborate dolly tracking shot it's kind of remarkable how how natural it all feels that one mm-hmm. shot yeah she sort of comes around in like a semicircle. they definitely look at each other and then he can't get to her and she's again framed by the windows yeah just like she was framed by those windows when she left the jewelry shop right there with the carriage and that's when he sees her again is with the carriage and again, what was it like they they literally run into each other with the carriage. So it's just like, oh, wow, I just happened to run into you. And he says, he says it, it must be fate. And that's ties in directly with where she's coming uh, from, well, you know, the yeah. superstition and uh, so the when tarot she goes cards. to church and lights all the candles and stuff, is he saying religion is a superstition? Oh, I would think so. I mean, here's a lady reading off cards and wearing a cross. Yeah, I mean that. This kind of would, it's would a, a radical statement at the time, but I'm like, okay, so this is a little bit 
A little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. Which yeah. Is like, that's yeah. what from it. was it. made in France, and France was a prime, especially back then, it was more of a, a Catholic, ca- Catholic country, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. But it was still, at least irreverent, shall we it's, say. It's the idea that, that she has these supernatural forces behind her, or that she relies on. She relies on, yeah. Whether it's superstition or religion or... Fate. Fate. And I'm sure France, what is this, seven years after World War II, is pretty disillusioned with a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Especially after living through Vichy France and seeing your own countrymen turn against you and all these things. So, yeah, I'm sure they were having their own psychological battles. And that's probably also a good reason why the general can be such a shitheel and isn't just, you know, thrown up as this, uh, you know, the, put on a pedestal because he was this war hero or whatever. This relationship between the Baron and the Comtesse is amazing. And the way that it is played out through this uh, dance sequence, this waltz sequence, is just breathtaking. I haven't seen something as beautiful as this since maybe when we talked about the Renoir film and just like the way that they use film to tell this story. Grand illusion is the title I was trying to think of the way that they use film to tell this story and they use montage to tell this. And Oh my God, it is so brilliant. It's rapturous. It really is. It's almost delirious. (laughs) And one of the, I don't know, uh, if you guys remember this or not, there one of the dance sequences because it's kind of like three different locales, and they cut from one dance sequence to another dance sequence to another dance sequence. Mm-hmm. In the middle one, they're at a mass ball. They're the only couple who neither one of the people in the couple are wearing masks, and I don't know whether that signifies anything or not, and if you guys made anything of that or not, because everybody else is. Either the man's wearing a mask and the woman is or isn't, or they're both wearing masks. It's the only couple be, that neither one are wearing masks. I took it like they can only be their true selves with each other. As you say that, Ken, the first thing that popped in my head was the ball sequence in Batman Returns. And the only people who aren't wearing masks in that are Batman and Catwoman, are the people who wear masks all the time otherwise. This really shows that delirio your word can delirious the delirious nature of when you fall in love and you feel like you're just spinning and that the world is just there for you to enjoy and and they are the only two people in the world it feels like even to the point where the orchestra is packing up and leaving and they're still dancing there's no music but they're still dancing that may have been as Paulo suggested, is like they can only be themselves when they're together. Yeah. That could have been the moment, or roughly the moment, where they fell in love and they were unmasked, nothing to hide. They're in love. When is it? Because it's got to be shortly thereafter. This whole idea of her showing him out and saying, "You know, I don't love you. I don't love you. I don't love you." That is again a. Well, so the the framing of that, the way that we're led to that door, and the way that we see him on one side of the door and her on the other, 
and then after she closes closes the door, the way she looks back, looks back to the door, looks away again. So many emotions going on in this woman's face. That's after she faints, right? <laughs> <laughs> that, that could be many times. <laughs> That's I mean, a cop out. <laughs> at the hunt. Oh yes, that is uh, when Donati shows oh. up and she faints, or he falls off the horse and she faints, yeah. and that's when the general knows that something is up. The jig is kind of up at this point, yeah. or close yeah. to being up. Which is like one of the few times she genuinely faints. I think there's only really two that I would say are real faints, and this is one of them. That was one of them, yeah, when he fell off the horse. And then, of course, he's going to give her those earrings, and then that's really when fate, as it were, since we keep using that word, fate steps in, and it's just like, okay, you know, by having this, and then suddenly she starts making up these lies again to the general, and then has to make up lies to the baron, and that seems to me the first time that she probably has lied to him, and that's not good. There's an interesting scene that happens, I think it's after that scene with the fainting, if I remember correctly, Donati meets with the general at a men's club. Uh, in the background, while they're talking, you see fencers on guard type fencing. And it's kind of foreshadowing, maybe? Really? Yes. A duel. And it just happens to be in the background at this men's club. And the billiard game is sort of like their low-key duel, and then it's reinforced by... I remember thinking, yeah, these guys are going to – I didn't know if they were going to come to blows, but I thought they were going to at least have a, a verbal – Well, that's where I think it's the, – the line is kind of drawn in the Draw. sand within yeah. themselves. They realize they're at loggerheads. <laughs> and it starts there, yeah. Yeah, they've started their verbal sparring, and they never get to real fisticuffs or anything, but definitely uh, things – do escalate heavily towards the end or at the end. I didn't expect a duel. I didn't expect a literal duel to happen. As I was watching the movie, I kept wondering exactly what year it was. And there were different things that would come about where I was just like, okay, you know, this must be, it's before, you know, the first thing that I think of is World War II when I see a general. Then I'm like, no, this is before World War II. Is this World War One? No, no, it's before that. And then I'm just like going back and back and back. And so by the time I reach the end of the movie, I'm like, okay, a duel at this point makes total sense. I mean, I'm not sure. They probably had duels it's one of those weird facts that you probably hear like oh the last duel to be held in france was actually 1979 it's like oh that went on for so long (laughs) but you know back at this point it's just like okay yeah i can see duels definitely happening more often when they were showing the painting of napoleon i was just like okay this feels like napoleon was much more recent than i originally thought that's a, a strange scene when they show that painting of, of Napoleon, and it's almost like – because they're doing a shot, reverse shot of Donati and Madame, and it's 
it's almost like Ophuls is breaking the 180 rule because it doesn't feel like he's necessarily doing a true shot reverse shot just because of the way that the painting is framed in both of those. It's almost like it's almost like he's doing more of like a almost like a 30 degree difference between the two of them rather than doing a, a fuller departure between the two characters. I'm not sure if I know how to properly explain like the the mise en scène of of, of how he's doing it, but it just feels very off putting the way that he's going. Back back and forth and then of course that he is doing shot reverse shot between them because at this point they are separated so it's it really kind of shows you know because we've had them framed together so much even in that shot i was talking about earlier when she said i don't love you i don't love you you know he's on one side of the door she's on the other but we see that that separation with the door it's almost like a split screen effect but we see them on screen at the same time here we are getting one person than another person so they are separate separate spaces though the space isn't right Mm. i know what you're talking about but i did not get that effect but perhaps if i focus on it uh, you know i will but i know that sequence that you're talking about and the way that she's talking about on the on the right side of the painting is this, on the left side of the painting is that, and it's yeah, just Napoleon's like, here, yeah, right. And I'm like, oh, okay, and yeah, and then the general saying at one point, you know, like Napoleon only made two mistakes, and you know, one was Waterloo, and I'm trying to remember what the other one was. <laughs> the other was something about uh, it's best to escape from love or something along those lines, and he wants to uh, he uh, that. One of the hearts of the film is in that sequence, I, I believe, when he talks about that their relationship is only superficially superficial. That's one of the keys to the film because we're seeing the way these two live in this very uh, luxurious uh, surroundings and there's so much formality and so much uh, so much such a shining surface to everything. The, the candelabras, the... Uh, all this luxury, and it's all superficial. And what's going on now with Louise since she met Donati is something that is going on inside of her and has very little to do with the surface. I don't think he can really grasp what's going on with her, or or his perception doesn't allow him to understand what's going on. He's not concerned with what's going on with her. You know what I mean? Like he just, there's a scene where he goes around closing all the windows and while he's doing it, he's saying, he's saying that they will fight for their love or whatever, but, and and that he will stay there and stand with her and, and fight for their marriage and for their love. Right. Like he wants things to stay the same. Exactly. But that's it. Exactly. Paula, that's it. He doesn't know. Uh, he he doesn't understand her, and he doesn't no. understand uh, anything about what's going on inside of her. No. But he has an idea of how things should be, and he thinks that what's best for everyone is to continue the way on the path are. on the path that they're on. Yeah, he says because she she says she wants to escape, right. and what I, I'm thinking what's going on is that for once in her life she's gone from this frivolous superficial character to like feeling real genuine emotion and real genuine love for somebody. And she's kind of afraid of that. And maybe that's what she's trying to escape from is that is coming face to face with that. But he thinks that what she's really wants to escape for is that she's embarrassed about the whole fainting episode. 
And he says that, oh, he understands that 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 proves that she loves him is the fact that she wants to escape. That shows her good breeding. And, and it has nothing to do with good breeding. He doesn't get what she's going through. That sequence of him closing the windows and closing the drapes. I mean, we're going to get that opposite later on when she's almost at death's door and he probably thinks that she's just affecting this whole thing but her heart is broken at this point uh, later on in the film but at this point him closing the the curtains and closing the windows it, it feels like and i was trying to figure this out it feels like he is saying a lot more things as he's moving through the house and we're just hearing the, like the three bullet points that he's giving her was that kind of your guys's impression as well yeah, yeah i think he wants to close her in it's yeah. just another way of saying he wants things to stay the same. It's This has gone too far. That's basically what he's saying. Uh, the fainting thing, okay, snap out of it. You know. mm-hmm. uh, but, but he does say he wants her to do whatever she wants to do. And if that means leaving for a while, fine. With the idea, with the thought being that when you get back, everything will go back to normal. Because you got, we're just going to let this thing blow over. You can take a little trip, then come back, and everything's going to be the way it was. And talk about another echo. I mean, here we have Boyer, the general, showing off his wife at the train station, almost identical to the way that he showed off his mistress earlier. Yeah. yeah. And then again with the candles and the light, the way that she's laying in her her cabin on the train. Kevin's probably the wrong word, but and the keeping the lamp on and her um, her nanny or her servant like you know go to bed and her slowly turning that light off because lights and candles are so important to this movie and again like I was saying later on when Boyer opens up a window opens up a curtain and shines this light onto Madame it's you know that's one of the few times where we get this huge bright light coming in because most of the time we're dimming our lights and we're putting out the candles. But in this, he's kind of throwing this light upon her and hurting her with it. That's another example, another really important example of the real true technical mastery that is going on throughout the film. It's so impeccable. The the decor is impeccable. The set design is impeccable. The lighting is incredible. The camera movement, it's an orgy for film technique. Yeah, i got to shout out the cinematographer, Christian Matras, who has also worked on um, Inflesia and um, Grand Illusion. Not a huge surprise there. It's just as gorgeous as as Grand Illusion. Have either of you seen Madame de on the big screen? No, no, no. I, I wish I had. I know I'd seen yeah. uh, years, tw- 30 years ago. I don't know how long ago it was. DFT had a Sunday night series of Oval's films. And I saw Laurent and Lola Montez on the big screen there. And for whatever reason, I <laughs> didn't go to see Madame de Madame de. I wish I had now. That's all. Well, who knows? You may see it on our slate. You never know. I, I'm I have new enthusiasm for this film. You know, anytime right. you really concentrate your your attention right. on something. That, All right, so when is Cinema Detroit going to screen it? Right, that's the next question. Well, <laughs> I will be there, definitely. My goodness. Yeah, probably five people will be there. So <laughs> be one of the five. I'll be, I'll be one of them. We have a party in the lobby before we go in. 
Yeah, and it's just like I said, these echoes of these scenes, the the dialogue that will repeat itself, the emotions that will repeat itself, and yeah, the the all of these moments of candles, and of course the candle really playing a big part in the very final shot of the film. But throughout this movie, we have candles throughout this. And uh, yeah, talking about the technical mastery, when she's there putting the candles out in her own room during that scene where we see her in one room and the general in the other, just the way that the lights are dimming each time she puts out a candle. And we know this is well before Barry Lyndon, so they're not shooting this by candlelight. So whoever's doing the lighting in this and killing those those key lights every single time a candle goes out, oh man, it is fantastic. How many times? And of course, Barry Lyndon... Kubrick was uh, acknowledged that he was a uh, huge fan of Ophuls. That, yeah, uh, and I knew that, and I just it just he said that well, uh, Barry Lyndon that, is probably one of the most beautiful films. And he said that Ophuls' cameras uh, track through walls or something to that effect, mm-hmm. and uh, or flew, floated through walls. You know, I mean, like starting from Paths of Glory, you saw some of the most elaborate tracking shots yeah. in that yeah, film, yeah. and that. Recalls, you know, World War Two, World War One soldiers once again, elaborate tracking shots, beautiful rooms, beautiful palaces, and so you can see the influence there. I believe an influence he had he admitted to. So there's probably a very clear line between Renoir and then I would say maybe like Becker in the middle there and then Ophuls. Just those three filmmakers, there seems to be like a real discussion going from one to another to another. You could say that uh, they were all part of, maybe not Ophuls so much, but you mentioned Becker and uh, Renoir who were really important in the poetic realism style that was prevalent in French film in the 30s. And you could see that Ophuls uh, grew up, uh, he's born in Germany. So I'm thinking he got a little bit of expressionism, but he was on the border with France. So uh, a lot of the poetic realism as well. And that's really evident with the care that he takes in lighting in particular, those influences, the zeitgeist of what was in the air during the period of time that he grew up. He certainly caught that. I can't say that I'm as familiar with Ophuls as I should be, but I know that at one point he went to America and did his thing over there and then came back. It kind of reminds me almost of uh, when we were talking about Umbrellas of Cherbourg, when Demi went over to America and made a couple films and came on back. And just that whole like expatriation, you know, and like trying the Hollywood game, maybe not enjoying it that much and then coming back. Well, the difference is that Ophuls was a Jew, and it was World War Two, and that's why he came to America. Letter to an Unknown Woman was made here, wasn't it? Yes. I and, don't contain the center. Yeah. And this one, Madame D, was just like a few years before he passed away. Yes, he made Lola Montes in '56, I believe, and then he died. He was working on another film at the time of his death, and I believe it was taken over by Jacques Becker. As a matter of fact. Or someone from that uh, period, one of uh, Grimillion or someone, one of those people. I, I'm not specifically sure who it is, but uh, he was working on something, and the film went into pre-production, and someone just took over the whole thing and finished it. 
you brought up uh, her her train ride, and I believe it's on the train. And there's a what I thought was just an absolutely beautiful segment there, where she's returning his letters. She she's writing letters back to him, and she and she never sends them back. And she writes a letter to him saying that she doesn't send her that she loves him, but she could not send this letter back. And then she rips it up, and the pieces of the letter go out the window. And they mix in with snow that's falling among some trees. Oh, it's such a poetic it's and beautiful exquisite. moment. It is. It, yeah. 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 The bits of letter seem to almost turn into snow or the snow almost seems to turn into these are all the letters that she has written over the last few months. And they're all pouring down from the sky. And it's all studio trickery. It's all, you know, soundstage and everything you can tell. And yet it is just so beautiful and, and so goes, well accomplished. It goes back to the idea that she's having a genuine emotion and she doesn't know how to deal with it. She's written all these different letters and none of them have been right or she would have sent it. She would have sent one of them if it had been right. And she Good. just, she can't, you know, she's out of her depth because she's never been in love before. And we find out that she's not just running away to one place that, her valet or whatever the, the the woman that's traveling with her is like oh we're moving again it's like we never stay more than a week in one place she is constantly moving trying to get away trying to 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 get some sort of settlement of her emotions but she is just on the move all the time yeah she's heartbroken and it starts to affect her physically and she becomes you know she's she's it's almost uh you know consumption where she her emotions have uh taken so much of her that now she is physically ill but uh, she's the girl that cried wolf people won't believe her like uh, i don't think the general believes that she's actually sick because she pulled so many faints faints and dramatics and what have you and is she maybe worried that she kind of knows the general is going to flip out? Not flip out, but she knows he's not going to be happy, even though, you know, he's had a mistress for years and she may have had flirtations as well. There's something of a double standard there where the guy is allowed to do, you know, the usual double standard that I think to maybe she's not afraid of him, but it'll certainly screw up her nice life. She goes with this other guy. And then, and what will happen then, you know, so. And the way that the general just twists that knife by making her go with him to give those earrings to, like, the needy, to the, the it's almost like the widows and orphans. Oh, it's her yeah. niece. Actually, it's her niece. And, uh, well, was locked in. yeah, and ah. there's a scene where her niece just gave birth. And at one point, she's kneeling at at the foot of the bed. The baby is lying in a a bassinet. Yeah, <laughs> and the look at her face is almost like she's mourning the child she didn't have with Donati or something, because there's no mention of children at any point between the general and her. Right. Throughout the film, so it may have been like an extra cruel irony for her that she's ends up kneeling. At this, in front of this child, someone else's child, someone else's child, yeah, earrings that now mean so much to her. 
Oh, yeah. When they meant so little before that she could just part with them and create that elaborate ruse all for the 20,000 francs. She just didn't give a shit before. And now it is just breaking her heart. And he knows it. Yeah, there's no reason why he should want to hold on to Madame so much other than this control thing, other than this this codependency that we were talking about. Because as he starts to lose his grip on her, he just wants to hold on to her tighter and tighter and tighter until he finally manages to drive this wedge between her and the Baron. And that's when the heartbreak is there. And that's when I'm watching this going, if you haven't had your heart broken, I don't think that you can appreciate this movie. She has the earrings, which had had become, like I said, a a totem, a a talisman, a fetish for her that represents is a physical manifestation of her love for Donati. During the time that they were separated, before they met up while she was still away in the carriage, he mentions that she had sent all he got was some flowers from her in their correspondence. That was the only correspondence apparently she sent to him was some flowers. Later on, he has those flowers pressed in this notebook. So to me, it kind of like those flowers are the physical manifestation of his love for her, just like the (laughs) earrings are the physical manifestation of her love for her, you know? So I just find that interesting that even though they're apart from each other, mm-hmm. they they have these things that make them close. And it seems like during their separation, they become closer and closer. Right. Yeah, because they miss each other so much. And that's, I think, they probably were used to seeing each other, those times that they could those moments that they talk about during the waltz scene where it's like oh three days is so far away oh a day is so far away and now they have who knows how much time apart from each other and i think this is truly one of those moments that proves the old cliche of absence making the heart grow fonder until they do meet up in uh i don't know what the location is but it's obviously prearranged somehow uh through letters through correspondence and they do meet up in a carriage, and I can't help but wonder, do you guys think that the deed was ever really done? I was just going to ask you guys what you think. I think not. I don't think that they did either. It. I thought there was a line later on in the in film. In the film, in the church, never, yeah. In, yeah. In the church, I, she says, is just our thoughts or something to that effect, yeah. yeah. I think that's why it's the earrings, you know, and the flowers, that's all they have of each other. I really believe that. I thought differently when I first saw it, but I don't think they did. Neither do I. And I think that might actually be worse for the general, is that she feels so much for this guy that she hasn't even been boning. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. No, because if if it was just a lust thing, he can handle that. I mean... Look, the general and her aren't boning. No, definitely not. That would have been a nice bit of dialogue to insert somewhere, you know. Are you boning him? (laughs) (laughs) But I think those young men who are constantly, you know, bonjour, madame, when she's dancing and, uh, you know, both with uh, the Baron and and with her husband, I think that those guys, maybe there was consummation going on there. But, yeah, I think that their love was a a pure, pure, pure love that they didn't even have to go that far. Throughout the film, at various different parts where where you see carriages leaving 
the area where the general is, and you see these uh, sentries or guards who lift up the, uh, uh, that to me is almost like a respite from all the, uh, or it's just a, a little escape from all the luxury and everything. These are real people, <laughs> the, these guards, and they're commenting kind of like a Greek chorus on the comings and goings of the various different people who are hard coming and going. And I, I found that to be interesting that, that Ophels felt they should do something like that, have these people represented. I, aside from servants, aside from that, that these are these soldiers, young soldiers are saying something's up <laughs> when uh, they see some characters. And now nah, he's just a merchant. Just uh, don't salute him. They feel to me like they're those same two doormen from the opera house just kind of moved into other places. I mean, literally not the same characters, but yeah. the, that same kind of, as you said, Greek chorus. Yeah, they're, they're just to open doors and to lift gates. <laughs> and to sort of show that these are sort of elevated people, like the upper crust of society, and that their actions are being observed, you know, and they do provide, like you said, comic relief. It's like a little bit of a, a palate cleanser, or it adds like a humorous well this movie could be so heavy yeah. otherwise yeah it, it just lightens the mood just a little bit you're encouraged to maybe take it not so seriously for that amount of time like when there's that great moment too when they're like oh you don't have to work for this guy he's been like this for the last two weeks yeah so maybe it does have a little bit of a dramatic function other than you know just how the other half lives or whatever and that's definitely appropriate for that moment. I think the farther we get in there, because the, the, the soldiers, they're not hilarious. They're just, as you're saying, they're more the common folk. Um, I think had we had a real knee slapper moment at that point, it would have just gone completely wrong because we are more serious at that moment. And they, he does keep turning up the tension as we go along here and what's going to happen. Because at first, yeah, like I mentioned Lubitsch earlier, like this felt like it could have been a Lubitsch film at first with this whole, oh, you sold these earrings. I know that you sold the earrings. I mean, this is, you know, like the, the cat and mouse games that our, our thieves play, you know, in, uh, in, in some of these games. Yes, yeah. thank you yeah. but then it just gets so much worse uh, not worse but just so much more serious as we go along and then it literally becomes a, mo- a matter of life and death or i should say life and deaths yes the earrings get returned by the uh, jeweler again after after uh the niece has sold the earrings back to the jeweler who's expecting the general to just buy him again. And at that point he says he has no interest and there, there's been some betrayal going on here, some heavy betrayal. And, um, when it's the, the jig is really up when, um, the general brings the naughty in, into a, a private room, um, and discusses the situation. Cause he, he's realized he's come to realize that, the earrings that all of a sudden has shown up. Madame de has uh, deceitfully taken the earrings, which she couldn't wear in front of her husband because they're supposed to have been elsewhere. I'm getting, I, because the earrings get returned and bought and returned so often, <laughs> I'm kind of like lost in my, lost in the spot in the film. This is before she, she's, 
give us the earrings to the to the niece. But I think it's important because when he has a showdown with Donati, after he realizes that Donati had given her the earrings, Donati has a farewell at that point with uh, Madame de, and he says, "I'm no longer here." At some point, and I, I think he he's kind of understand understood that she's lied to him and this little white lie contains a bigger little white lie and he just he becomes heartbroken that she's been that deceitful it's the whole idea that people think that just by their very presence they can change a person's nature and you can change a lot of it but you can't really always change all of it and yeah so so I think he he's come to that realization. And from that point on, it struck me that the Donati character is like, okay, I'll fight in a duel. I don't care. I don't have, you know, whatever. He doesn't I, have anything to live for. Exactly. He doesn't have anything to live for. When and she deceived him like she deceived her husband, they had a pure bond. This is, to me, another piece of the argument that they did not consummate their affair. Once that pure bond is broken, he's like... Wow, I am heartbroken, and I have nothing to lose. It seems like the life has gone out of him. The charm yeah. has gone. The charm mm-hmm. has gone out of him. Yeah, he's he, a show. Yeah, I mean that breaks my heart when he realizes that she can lie to him as easily as she can lie to her husband, and that she again just starts digging herself deeper with all these things and this whole like. You know, I can make an excuse to make sure that I can wear these earrings in front of my husband. He'll never know. And then the way that she lies to Donati and like, oh, yeah, well, I told him this. And then she comes back. No, no, I told him that or I told him this. And yeah, oh, man, that is that is heartbreaking. And that is, you know, for for both of them. But and that's I think finally when she realizes that she has to grow up. I feel bad for her, too. Yes. I, I don't see her as a total evil. No. Oh, of course she's, not. She's, you know, she's trapped in this lifestyle. It's all she's ever known. It's just tragic. It's just, it's, it's tragic. You know. No, my heart goes out to Donati, but it really goes out to her because we have stuck with her throughout this entire film and we have seen this transformation. And then it's like that, that moment of weakness where she goes back to her old ways, where she becomes this liar again and realizes that she can't do that because that just managed to cost her everything. And in a way, after that moment, she becomes a shell. Yeah. And like I said before, I didn't think that this movie was going to end with a duel. (laughs) And then I kind of realized that that's really the only way that it could end. And it is almost like uh, Madame De tries to talk, uh, uh, talks with Donati about it. She says it'll be like suicide, and in a way, it probably is in a dramatic narrative sense. Mm-hmm. Donati, like you said, doesn't care anymore. I love that moment near the end when the shot rings out and she reacts almost as if she were the one being shot, because I think that's the moment that her heart breaks. And we don't see what happens to her at the end of this movie. We don't see what happens to Donati at the end of this movie, but I think we all know what happened to them. And I think that's beautiful that we don't have to see that. We don't have to have it spelled out to us. 
but they are both dead. <laughs> I mean, uh, her her maid, I think her name was Helene, does announce that she's dying or something to, to uh, I don't know whether it's at the site of the duel. I can't remember. Yeah, she's trying to rush. Trying, she heard the shot, and she's trying to find them. I thought, like, uh, the real cheesy thing, I was like, oh, my God, the gun's going to misfire, and he's going to kill Madame De. <laughs> so I was so glad that that <laughs> oh, didn't gonna happen. going to be a, a ricochet or something? <laughs> yes, yes. I was so glad that didn't happen. Oh, man. <laughs> that would have been the worst. You know, like, the guy, like hesitates or like a bird flies by or something really <laughs> terrible happens oh, and then it just no. like wildfires and she was rushing to the scene or she rushes in front of Donati and then he ends up killing her instead because he's so good with the pistol and oh yeah that would have been not as quite as good of a film all right let's go ahead and we're going to take a break and play an interview with professor susan white the author of the cinema of max Ophuls. And we'll be back with that after these brief messages. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 2. The Blake 7 Method. Remove the character from the scripts. Introduce a new replacement character. Eventually, few of the original characters will be present. And the series will barely resemble its original form. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast. www.britishinvaders.com Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201. Do you like great music? Do you like in-depth podcasts? Do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope? If you answered yes, no, or fish to any of these questions... Love That Album is the show for you. Every month, Morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail. They'll cover the performer, the history behind the recording, the musicianship, common thematic elements between the songs, and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. So, if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to Love That Album Podcast at Apple Podcasts, 
or download directly from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. Susan, what got you interested in writing about Max Hopefuls? I fell in love with Letter from an Unknown Woman. I was in grad school, and my dissertation director, George Wilson, and I'll just do a plug, he did this extremely perceptive book on philosophy and film called Narration and Light. Uh, And he has a more recent book as well, but Narration and Light has a chapter on Letter from an Unknown Woman, and I was sort of, you know, being a sounding board for him when he was writing it, and I just, you know, looking at the complexities of the film, that was it. I wanted to write a dissertation and then a book. Now, when you were studying Ophuls, were you studying both his life and his films, or primarily sticking to the films? Primarily the films, but you have to know something about his life. You know, clearly it it was... I mean, he was a Jew who had to leave Germany in 1933, and, you know, he um, had to hustle around different countries, as you know very well, and had trouble getting work at certain points. So the life and the work are intertwined. Well, how did he come to directing? I mean, because 1920s, I think he started in Germany. It wasn't like direction was that common of a thing to do. He started in the early 30s. And just like a little background, he came from a middle-class Jewish family in Saarbrücken, Germany. His dad was a textile manufacturer, of all things. He started directing theater. and Well, actually, he started off as an actor, but that didn't work out. Um, so he started directing theater, and he became, I think, the only Jew who ever directed plays at the Burgtheater in Vienna, and this is one of the reasons why people sometimes have thought that Ophuls is Viennese and he's not, he's German, although he took French citizenship. And may I add, when he took French citizenship, he dropped the umlaut from his name, so it's not correct to put the umlaut. He directed actually more than 200 plays at the Burgtheater, so he was absolutely a theatrical director too. But he got into film when he started being a dialogue director for Anatole Litvak. That just got him started. And, you know, they had a need for directors, and so they gave him some projects. And when I think of those films from the 1930s in Germany, I tend to go more towards, like, Lenny Riefenstahl's mountain films or on the other extreme with German Expressionism. Where was he kind of in that that spectrum? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> He wasn't really on that spectrum. He had, uh, you know, a different style, um, you know, influenced by French film and, you know, also theatrical influence, although you can't say his films are theatrical, but I think the way he worked with the actors, he was very technically innovative, though not in an expressionist way, not using chiaroscuro and, you know, things of that sort 
canted angles. Um, but he mostly stuck to making like very tightly put together romantic films. His best known early film was called Liebelei, which means flirtation. And it's a 1932 adaptation from a schnitzler play. You probably know that Kubrick's last film, Eyes Wide Shut, was also a schnitzler adaptation. So, and that wasn't a coincidence. When he left Germany in 1933, because he had to, um, well, he was very smart, took his family, including young Marcel. Liebelei was still on the marquee, you know, and he was fleeing for his life. And I think they took his name off the credits. But, you know, he fled to France, but he also did films in uh, Holland and Italy. And his Italian film was called La Signora di Tutti, which I guess it was kind of a rehearsal for Lola Montez and thematically in, in other ways. But it won, like, the technical prize at Berlin Film Festival, I think. It's really a very cool film that people get a chance to see it because it's all done in flashback. And the woman is it's a point-of-view shot with an anesthesia mask coming down over her face. As you know, and the whole film is a flashback from her point of view, you know, while she's under anesthesia. And I won't tell you if she dies or not, but you know, and that's extremely typical not the anesthesia, but the woman's point of view is probably the thing, you know, along with Mizoguchi, you know, Ophuls is best known as a male director who focused on female perspectives, and that was in the early films as well as the later films. When I was writing my book, I'm very old, and videotapes of these films were not available. And for Comedium Held, which is the Dutch one, comedy of, of gold, uh, and Divine, and Die Lachende Erben, the happy heirs, I had to go to France, Holland, and East Germany to see them. It kills me that... The kids don't get it, you know. It's like the DVDs are so available to them that they don't have that thrill of seeing something, you know, with this really scary East German woman, you know, showing you a film on a flatbed or something like that. Like I said, the the Dutch film uh, Comedy Without Money is in part about circulation of money, and uh, that's one thing that I'm going to say a little bit about circulation uh, is a very big theme, both visually and, um, you know, in terms of a motif in the films. And that, that film is hardly ever seen. And it's, it's kind of Brechtian, which if you see it, you'll understand, has this very ironic speaker speaking over the action. So and there's also a French film that doesn't get seen very much. And like you were saying, it's not typical of the era. It's not It's not a poetic realist film. It's a 1936 film called Divine or Divine, that's her name, and it's about a showgirl. And he tended to you know, show the theatrical world and women who were sort of being abused by the theatrical world, and, and that's one of them. It's, you know, so if people can get hold of those films, I think they get a very good idea of, you know, his his style from that period, uh, you know. Why 
did he focus on women so much in his movies? He is known for that, and obviously it's not typical, or else I wouldn't even bring it up. There's sort of like the, the shift in criticism since you know the days of what they call second-wave feminism, talking about women as victims, yeah, which they definitely are in Opal's films. I mean, Lula Montez suffers the torments of the damned, but... Um, you know, on the other hand, the women do have agency in their way, and they do have a point of view, both in terms of the camera and otherwise. And I, I don't know why, you know, Ophels was, you know, did this. I, you know, read his autobiography, which is just hilarious. And, you know, there may be other people who have a sense of this. For everything Ophels, I would ask Lutz Bacher, uh, who wrote on his Hollywood films and knows every every tracking shot and every piece of equipment that were used in those films. But I don't know. I don't know why. Well, speaking of the tracking, that's the other thing that he seems to be known for is that moving camera. When was that introduced? Was that kind of his his trademark throughout his career, or did that come about it during a certain period of time? He tried tried to have the camera as mobile as possible early on, but it wasn't until he got to Hollywood and then the later films in France that he really had the technology to do what Lutzbacher calls the mobile long take, where you have a single shot that takes, you know, goes for a long time uh, and with a moving camera. And he was certainly not the first person to do this. I mean, you think of Murnau and, you know, as you said, the expressionist. But uh, it's very, very marked uh, in his work. I know that you talked about him leaving Germany and going to France. Why did he end up leaving France and going to the U.S.? Well, I think there were a lot of reasons, but, you know, it wasn't really very safe there at the time. He ended up going to Switzerland first. Um, you know, I think they wanted to get out of there uh, is, is probably the underlying reason. And so they were able to get to the United States, but then he had trouble getting work for quite a while. That period that we're talking about is not very well known, and I'm you know trying to put a plug in for that. But um, you know he was just, he was just so so happy when he he was able to use you know the uh, <laughs> terrible the big boy equipment. You know, like Orson Welles said, "Oh my God, I mean a kid in a candy shop." You know all the equipment he could use. So that that was a it was a good move for him. Although, like I said, he had trouble getting work. Was he still playing with the same themes when he was in the U.S. as he had been doing in France and Germany? Or did he change his style and the the themes once he moved to the U.S.? In some ways, they become more complex. But in some ways, his style, I mean, you know, it really gelled with Nibelai, which is such a beautiful film. Um, And... Uh, you know, that, like we said, the emphasis on the woman's point of view. Um, I mean, I would say there's a really strong through line in the films, you know, his technical proficiency, the mobile long take, you know, with weaving in and out of characters' movements and thematically, 
the, the representation of women at, you know, in very difficult circumstances, struggling in those circumstances. And uh, although not all of the films do this, there is the swashbuckler, which was the first one he did in the U.S. called The Exile with Douglas Fairbanks Jr., you know, when he finally got a gig. So that's atypical. But, um, you know, to me, his quintessential American film, which has a lot in common um, with Nibelai, and it's a, uh, a Zweig, Stefan Zweig adaptation, is Letter from an Unknown Woman. You can certainly look at something like Nibelai and look at Letter from an Unknown Woman and, you know, even location, um, the use of snow, you know, <laughs> just this kind of, you know, the coldness of the environment and the warmth of, you know, a doomed romance and you have to experience the precision of these films to understand that they're not just, they're not ordinary romantic films, but they definitely have a romantic component. They're a lot harsher than a, a, a romance, you know, your average romance would be in terms of, you know, what happens to the characters. Well, again, I have to ask you, why did he make that return trip to France after Letter from an Unknown Woman? It seems like that and, you know, caught in the reckless moment. I mean, I know Letter from an Unknown Woman, that has staying power. That's a movie I still hear about today. Um, Letter from an Unknown Woman was a big flop, but it ended up making its money back when they put it on television. As a matter of fact, he was always, he did so many, you know, had so many projects going, like Kubrick, you know, had a million projects going. And he went over specifically, you know, to do a project that was offered him, and he thought he was going to come up back to the U.S. He, had, he planned to come back to the U.S. He was even going to make a film, a comeback film for Garbo, but it just didn't work out that way. He ended up getting more gigs in France and, you know, made his last films there. Although, you know, with Lola Montez partly in, in Germany as well. So it, it it's just the happenstance of how people get work in the world of film production. And, you know, of course, with Lola Montez, that was the time when big international co-productions were starting to be popular and, you know, that's what this was. And he spent an enormous amount of money on it and probably would have been persona non grata for a while. But unfortunately, he died two years after after Lola Montez. If you want to talk about a flop, that was a flop. Well, how about Earrings of Madame De? Was that well-received when it came out? Well, it didn't produce riots the way Lola Montez did. Literal riot in the street, but... One thing that was going on in France is that what was really popular was the boulevard film, right? It was hard for a film like, even though it had well-known stars like Daniel Darieux and Boyer, it didn't make the kind of impact that, you know, your big marquee films made and didn't really find the right niche so, uh, and on the art circuit, it did well, you know, as well, it's not that remunerative, but on the art circuit in the U.S., and this is where Kubrick saw it and fell in love with Ophuls and said he was the most influential director on his his style, 
when Ophels died, Kubrick was making Paths of Glory, and they were using the same chateau that that had been used in Lola Montez, and they stopped production for a day in homage um, to Ophels. But uh, that's getting off the topic of why was Madame de not, you know, an enormous uh, success. And I think it was just, again, you know, the kinds of films that people were into, but the mark that it made was really an artistic mark, you know, on the, of course, the Cahiers du Cinéma crowd who were, you know, they were very, very at arms against that boulevard theater, what they called the cinéma de qualité, quality cinema, um, you know, Papa's cinema, but Ophels was a darling of theirs, as, as was Hitchcock. You know, they were promote really promoting the films. But again, that was a very specific intellectual milieu. What are your thoughts on airing some Madame Du? I was talking to you earlier about this. You know, one thing that's really lately impacted my thoughts about it is that my very good friend, the screenwriter, uh, she worked with Jacques Becker and Ophels and other people. Annette Vademont uh, died, I think it was in January, and we were really drawn together by Ophels and by kind of a folie à deux, like we did a road trip. She was in her late 70s uh, to, uh, from Tucson to Vegas and um, had a really good time. We went to the top of the stratosphere and went on a really scary ride, and we're trying to impress each other, you know, so yeah, I closely associate the film with her. But even from the opening shots, uh, when Louise is looking at her possessions, wanting to sell them, and we don't have a reveal of her until, a, you know, a few minutes into the film. And you just remember that incredibly ornate mirror and the beauty of Daniel Darieux, you know, um, and it's, you know, people call him Baroque, but at the same time, there, there's a kind of simplicity that comes through with, in the precision of what he's doing. You know, so it's, um, you know, it's a little bit paradoxical. Uh, and Madame Du really exemplifies, you know, the best of that style. I really like also, there's a returning theme of the military man in his films. And as people listening to this, probably know because they will have watched Madame Du or will watch it. Charles Boyer plays um, Louise Du's uh, nobleman and husband who's also a general. And um, he, Boyer gives a really magnificent performance as this, this general who is powerful and abuses his power during the film, but is in love with his wife. And Ophel shows class hierarchy really well uh, and shows the, you know, it shows the military as a kind of, you know, a place of entrapment for this general, um, you know, as he's done with other military figures in his films. Uh, So he's kind of trapped by um, being you know, a, a powerful military man, his girlfriend says, uh, don't remember her exact line, but, you know, uh, 
people don't get what they want in the army. And he said, surtout quand on est général, above all if you're a general. So he was constrained by that and by social class and the norms of social class. And I think that's expressed really beautifully because he has to express his love for his wife, really kind of sotto voce. Um, and, uh, you know, there's this great scene where she's lying to him about having sold the earrings and he's going around shutting windows and punctuating what he's saying by shutting the windows, closing one window, je vous respect, I respect you, je vous admire, and closes the window. And then the final one, um, or I'm sorry, it's perhaps the blinds, but same difference. Um, je vous aime, I love you. But he says that kind of in a low voice. And they say vous to each other. They use, you know, as upper class people, they use the formal vous and you know, that's something that you see like in the Grand Illusion and um and it's just this great depiction of class. Uh it's one of the things. Um the dancing scenes, you know, you can really see the effect of the influence of the dancing scenes on um say, you know, the ballroom scene in um uh Paths of Glory or um, you know, the, the dance, the ballroom scene in, um, Eyes Wide Shut. And, you know, so I, I just appreciate the dimensionality of it. And, you know, the kind of Stendhalian theme. He was a real big admirer of, of Stendhal, uh, Stendhal's notions about love and what Stendhal called crystallization. You know, that there's a sudden crystallization of the feeling of love and that it saps the life out of Louise Du is, you know, what ends up happening. But if you've ever been hurt by love, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> these are, you know, along with, you know, experiencing these things on several levels at the same time, you know, in a really personal way, but, um, you know, and watching the way they unfold visually like the other films, it deserves a rewatching many times so you can see how subtly it's put together. It's very rhythmic, like all of the films. As the general says, you know, because people say have said that the films are kind of superficial, and the general says to his wife, our relationship is only superficially superficial. And then there's the whole thematic of circulation that you... Uh, which is a commentary on capitalism and so on, um, in my opinion, with the earrings, um, you know, with women, uh, you know, I mean, something like the carousel in La Ronde, you know, just sort of carrying the characters along inexorably in these circular structures, you know. So there's there's so much to the film. You know, you can... I did a a commentary track for Criterion with Galen Studler uh, for this film. And I've never listened to it because I think that <laughs> I'm afraid to listen to it. I thought I should really listen to it and see what I said then. But uh, um, I'd appreciate it if uh, someone listens to it and tells me about what it's about. Yeah. Well, you could have chosen to write about any filmmaker when you wrote your uh your thesis and you know subsequently turned it into a book 
why Ophuls? Why was he the one of all filmmakers that captured your attention enough to devote so much time and energy to him? You know, you're right. There were a lot of lot of filmmakers I was interested in and that I've written about since then. You know, Hitchcock and, and Kubrick has been especially interesting to me. I felt like he was under-recognized. There hadn't been any feminist studies of him at all. Um, so uh, I, it just seemed important to me. So obviously, if I'm going to ask you about recommendation of Ophel's titles, I would say Letter to an Unknown Woman would probably be at the top. Does that sound right? That's one unknown woman's opinion, uh, because there are a lot of hidden gems. Uh, Andrew Sarris said that Lola Montez, which is, you know, this enormous film, uh, was the best film ever made. Uh, and I think that it's a bit of an acquired taste, Lola Montez. Um, but it's a, it's a must-see for people interested in film. You know, the late French films are seen a lot. One of my favorites is is also one of the American films, The Reckless Moment, which is he ventures into film noir from a feminist perspective or a woman's perspective, but she's working with, um, with you know, feminist uh, sort of agency in the film. And, you know, I could go through and talk about the virtues of watching a lot of them, but, um, you know, the initial homework is watching these later French and um, American films and then seeing what you can get hold of from the earlier films, you know, like Divine or Livelay or uh, La Signora di Tutti. People don't see them as much and they're just, they're really worth watching. They're really worth watching. Susan, what have you been up to lately? I guess this is kind of, I just realized this was a theme um, about saying that not that much had been written on Ophuls. Like there, were, there. I don't think there were even any books in print on Ophuls when I, I got published um, in America. That is. Um, so there's this other surprisingly under, um, under recognized or under criticized body of films, and those are the really cheap, true B noir uh, films, and. I kind of watched about 500 films and tried to figure out what the actual budgets of these films were because it was, you know, there. It, it's not like, you know, when people talk about B films, you know, they, a lot of them are talking about exploitation films or films that actually had somewhat higher budgets. And um, so I'm stubbornly looking for films that are, that really have a B budget and are not by uh, Edgar Ulmer, who has been written about, although he certainly was a true B noir um, uh, filmmaker, uh, the, probably the best. But there, there are films like um, one that I really like a lot. It's called Fall Guy, and it was uh, a Cornell Woolrich story uh, about um, cocaine. And they had the, they, the title of the story was Cocaine. And they, the filmmakers, I mean, excuse me, the studio was upset to find out that they had to include that in the film titles, the word cocaine, because <laughs> it was a bit of a problem with Joseph Breen and the, you know, production code, um, you know, censors. So there's another great 
Woolworth adaptation called I Wouldn't Be in Your Shoes, which I highly recommend. It's hard to find. You have to track it. I mean, this is fascinating to me because Woolrich is probably the most uh, adapted of the authors who, you know, into noir films, but there are these films like those two that I, I can't really find much at all that's been written about them. But with a lot of these films, you watch and you go, okay, this is why no one wrote about this. <laughs> you, know, you know, I have a lot of recommendations for those two, but I, uh, I better publish something on it before I encourage people to watch them. Well, Susan, thank you so much for your time. It is always a pleasure talking with you. It's a pleasure talking with you, too. All right, we're back, and we're talking about the earrings of Madame De. I'm not sure if there's anything else that we can really say about the earrings of Madame De. This has been a fantastic conversation about this. We pretty much touched on the story in a roundabout way, but there are individual moments that are just cinematically so striking, regardless of how they're attached to the, to the narrative storytelling. And the narrative storytelling is absolutely wonderful in this film. The way that the camera tells the story, the way that all the elements contribute to telling the story, but just seems like uh, Madame de walking on the beach, wearing a black cloak. It's a ravishing, like it, it's, it's just a ravishing image. And it's just so loaded with, I don't know. At that point in the film, it, it it's so moving. It's loaded I'm, with portent. Like what? It's loaded with what is going to happen now. You know. And we were talking about Renoir, and a lot of these shots could be paintings. Oh yeah, very much. Very most many of them. them. Paula, I've been interested in getting your perspective. In this very conscious period that we're going through right now, Time's Up and Me Too and everything, how does Earrings of Madame De play now from a feminist perspective? I don't know that I approach film from a strictly feminist perspective, but for what it's worth, I see this as a very, a film that shows us a lot of consequences of the patriarchy where this woman is trapped, she can't self-actualize because the men are really trapping her in this role as, you know, essentially arm candy. There's a double standard here, for sure, um, between what the husband is allowed to get away with and what the woman is allowed to get away with. I, I certainly see that, and it takes me back to a scene very early in the film when she is bartering with a jeweler, Mm -hmm. uh, and she talks about, Oh, I don't know anything of reason. She yeah. Play the dummy, you know? Right. Exactly. And that, and that I, she, she has come to accept that that is her power. That is her, her power. That is her the only power that she has. Her, her charm is her only power. Right. But it's very, it is very powerful. She but, is very powerful, but it, it's not going to help her do and be who she wants to be and, and, or is. And she's always there to be looked at. She is never looking until she really falls in love. Now until I don't she know. She really falls in love, right? And, and then the, the she self actualizes, and I think that. But that's, she's not allowed to really become indulge in that. Yeah, right. She she now knows who she is. She's had like a delayed adolescence, but she can't enact it because yeah. of the roles for women, you know, that are so restrictive. 
And and let's be real, the men are restricted too. The general is very restricted in his actions. He can't ever feel for her or have sympathy or empathy. Well, that's more of a psychological thing, I think, maybe than yeah. a than a. Uh, well, I told you I don't approach anything from strictly one perspective. You know what I mean? I'm not. Yeah. Just because you're a woman, you're not a feminist film theorist. Right. At all times. I consider the- myself a feminist because yeah. I believe that means that women are human beings, too. He, The general does say, late in the film, he does say at one point that he never liked the role you gave me to play. So and- they're both trapped by their roles. Yeah. And yeah. that's really what I would. That's really what I emphasize is. But I don't think it's so much that she gave him a role. I think he elected to accept that role. Right. Well, because it's nice having power and it's nice, you know, and, and, you know, when you're somebody's arm candy, you get all this jewelry and and stuff like this. But then it's it's a you're a hollow shell. Yeah. Well, as a superficial reciprocal relationship, then she. Yeah. but, but, But she's past that now. Yeah. And then yeah. and then that's where it comes in to where, um, you know, time's up. Right. So, I mean, I think women were were probably treated pretty badly at this time. I don't know what even if they were allowed to own property. I know in Britain at this time they weren't. Or yeah. I'm, I'm assuming it's sort of Victorian era yeah. Um, yeah. where a woman wasn't, you know, even allowed to own property. Certainly the vote was quite far off. Um, well, that's the impression that's I I get of that the idea that her charm is her power is that she does well within the realm in which she's allowed to express herself. She right. does well under the limitations that that have been placed upon her. Yeah, by that. But then it's not enough, you know. Right. Exactly. It's interesting to me that some people really criticize the film for the moving camera and they were just like, I I know Lindsay Anderson famously said, you know, it's just kind of a a trick, you know, that it it keeps you, uh, it's dazzling to you, you know, it's that whole, like, uh, if you can't, uh, uh, dazzle them with your brilliance, baffle them with your bullshit. And then they, he just was like, yeah, no, this is just utter bullshit. But then when I look at something like the moving camera, if it's done wrong, it can be, over directing, you know, and that's a, uh, it, it were a, a constantly moving camera, constantly, uh, shifting angle, all these kind of things that always reminds me of, and I know I'm going to get shit for this. It always reminds me of the usual suspects. I think the usual suspects is one of the most over directed oh that has come out in forever. And this is not over directed. This is elegant. This is not, uh, all flash, uh, you know, all sizzle and no steak. It's it's part of the whole design of the film. It's the yeah, wall. It's the dance. It's the waltz. Yeah, it's the it's movement. It's, too, it's it's expressive. Yeah, it's too intricately set up for it to be bullshit. It's graceful, and the thing is, well, yeah, there's too many patterns to it for it just to be somebody winging it. I've I've read Lindsay Anderson, and he's a better filmmaker than he's a critic. At least I <laughs> think so. No, really, seriously, he's he's trounced oh, I, some I, really I, great I, movies. Struck me as funny. Get back on the camera, Lindsay Anderson. <laughs> Don't be frightened. 
And the thing is, I don't think he's that great of a filmmaker either. <laughs> That's just my opinion. <laughs> I have to say I've never watched any of his things more than once. You talk about distracting film uh, camera movements. I got he had zoom shots in if like all over the place and a zoom yeah. shot doesn't make sense to me as a viewer. You talk about distraction because the human eye cannot zoom on anything. <laughs> That's true. It, you know, I mean, it can pan, it can track, it can dolly, it cannot zoom. And so I'm I'm opposed to zoom shots. And they were a fad maybe in the 60s or no, 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 don't. And you, you use zoom shots. Don't tell me what you think of other movies. I know you guys have mentioned some other Ophuls films. How does this kind of compare to his other works? Are there other Ophuls movies that I should be rushing out to see anytime soon? Lola Montez. The first time I saw it was at the Detroit Film Theater. I mentioned that. And at that time, I hadn't seen Ophuls, and I was judging them based on what I, the type of movies and the other movies I was seeing at that time. And it was very different from what I was seeing at that time. And I just thought it was very garish. I think the film had been restored since then. And I did pick up a, uh, a DVD of it after a recent restoration. And it just knocked me for a loop. I, I, I love that film. And uh, once again, a female protagonist. And it's been a while. I'll have to revisit it. But uh, at the most recent time I saw it, it just I just thought it was fantastic. I agree. I really love Lola Montez. It's been a while since I've seen it. Um, if you want to see Ophuls in American context. Um, English, yeah, English-speaking. Um, cast what have you um joan fontaine is in it as the as that film's lisa that would be an interesting sort of parallel to this film where you know it's a doomed love affair i mean what awful film is not but i to me it's like a that's the nearest parallel that i see well la ronde too yes uh this last week i i watched both La Ronde and Le Plaisir, and I was, I'd seen La Ronde before, and I remember enjoying it. Uh, it is kind of, you know, starts off with uh, a couple. One of the couple goes on and has a tryst with somebody else. The partner in the second tryst has a tryst with somebody else. It's a mm-hmm. circle, a circle of love. It's much like the earrings are going from person to person. Right, right. And it was uh, written. It was from a novel by Schnitzler, who Kubrick would later go on to adapt for uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but it, it's an amusing film with once again some very great moments. And Le Placeur is the same way. There's uh, it once again though. It, it, it's three Guy de Maupassant stories, uh, so it doesn't have a. It's not like Earrings of Madame De, which is a narrative from beginning to end. Those two films in particular seem like they're segments, but they're all impeccably done, and it's the highest quality of craftsmanship and uh, just beautiful moments throughout. I did see Caught, one of the American films, with James Mason and Robert Ryan. It is a noir, so that little bit of German expressionism, poetic realism is put to good use there. 
a lot of a lot of the filmmakers from Europe who came over during World War Two. This is Foundation of Noir. Yes, yes. They they said you're from Europe. Oh, give us the you know expressionism. Give us the uh, give me some cool. chiaroscuro here. And yeah, 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 yeah. Trapped, so, doomed lovers. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, and that fit right in, and that's and that's a, a fine example of film noir. Well, you uh, said two of the magic words with film noir, so I will definitely be checking that one out, as well as the other ones. They sound delightful as well. I've heard of Lola Montez for years and years, as well as Laurent. So in these films, I think at least three, if not more, of these movies are Criterion releases now. Mm-hmm. I think all four are. So usually makes it easier to pick up. What made you choose Madame Du? You don't have to put this in, but I'm just curious. I will tell you, it was kind of on my, I need to watch this movie. My, the, the interview that I do in this episode or have, will be doing because she's not available for a little while. So this episode is going to be delayed yet again. But, uh, Susan White, uh, was my feminism and film professor when I was at U of M. And she wrote this book about Ophuls, and I was just like, okay, I need to do a Max Ophuls film, and for whatever reason, I chose this rather than Lola Montez. I think this is a really good choice. I'm fine with it. I just hope I don't sound like too much of an idiot when you ask me for the feminist perspective, because you're going to have around here. There's nothing that's all she studies. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. It was probably pretty... uh presupposing on my part she's a woman as you know, I mean, I'm representative mean, of my entire gender on behalf of my entire gender I think for all women Paula tell us I, I tell us how we're supposed tell us how we're supposed to feel about this I, I guess it's more the feminine perspective than the feminist perspective I'm fully qualified to offer that I apologize no. if, if you found that pandering no, or anything. No, but. no, I'm no, I that was absolutely fine. I just I then he said he's gonna the interview is gonna be with a feminist film professor and I'm like, oh shit. If anything, I will be asking her more about Ophuls the man and the career and just kind of how this oh, yeah, fits in with his filmography and stuff. Because I mean, yeah, Lola Montez is I mean, she's a sex worker, like, you know, I'll be obviously listening. I think this is great. Like anytime Somebody wants to do a quote unquote old movie is good with me. Well, uh, he uh, Ophuls had the reputation for being a woman's director in this similar way to like uh, George Cukor in America was. Uh-huh. And well, uh, his films, what great roles! I mean, what you know. And in fact, it, it, it like for it didn't. He really didn't catch on as uh, being thought of as being one of cinema's great filmmakers until uh, the women's movement. Until he, he started getting more of a serious reputation in, in the 70s. Uh, and up to that, it, the films were thought of as being merely melodramas. And uh, so... Yeah, because women's stories are always lesser than. And that's why this moment right. we're having right now with Lady Bird and I, Tanya and um, some of these other films have it's been so refreshing to me because they say you know girls stories matter women's stories matter ladybird is probably gonna end like our it started last year so if we count it as a 2017 film that's gonna be our number one seller for the year really that's fantastic yeah and it's a it's a girl she has boyfriends but her main relationships are with her mother and her best friend 
And I have waited kind of my whole life. And I believe a lot of other people have waited all their lives to see a movie like this, a coming of age movie where a woman, a girl is the actor, the agent, not the acted upon. Mm-hmm. And it's refreshing. It's, it's really refreshing. It's not perfect. It's not a perfect film by any means, but it's, it's a huge thing. It really is. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. You think crows are scared of a scarecrow? Crows are laughing. Crows are laughing. That's right. Crows fly by, they see that, makes them laugh. Behold, the captains of industry, the prospective owners of Maxie's Car Wash, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Maybe Maxie's Car Wash. Car Wash. Yeah. Okay. For every car, there is dirt. Max and Lion. The only difference between them and the Rockefellers is a few hundred million dollars and about 1,500 miles. First off, there's Max. I've got to tell you something about me. I mean, it's not a lie, you know what I mean? Yeah? I don't trust anybody. I don't love anybody. <laughs> hey, we're going to be partners, okay? Okay. All right. Come on. Max did six years in prison for beating the hell out of a guy, and it didn't teach him a thing. Okay. All right. No, Max. Just one way. Max, Just one way. Get out. Believe it or not, Max is the brains of the partnership. Oh, all of me. Plastic pipe for durability. $600. And then there's Lion. I think your specialty is going to be waxing. Waxing? Waxing. No, no, and um, keeping the customers happy. Lion figures if you can make somebody laugh, you won't ever need to fight. Why did you call? Stupid girl. Get out of here. Hey, Max! Hey, Max! Lion is a scarecrow. That's right. Who's laughing? No, you don't have to hit people. But if you make them laugh... No, crows are not scared, believe me. Crows are scared. No. And the, uh, uh, crows are laughing. Crows are laughing, right. You know, in a joint, I heard some tales, man. Oh, boy, howdy. I, I, I heard some tall tales. Uh, I mean, uh, you're not playing with a full deck, man. It's been five years. You know, your wife might be married. She might have moved away. Why don't you give her a call? Look, I want to see my kid, right? What am I going to do, shove the lamp? Through the phone? Sure, sure. Send the money and see the world. Annie, please. Look, let me come over. I don't want to see you. Max and Lion, the prospective owners of Maxie's Car Wash. All they have to do is get to Pittsburgh. But between California and Pennsylvania, there are a lot of ups. Drinks on the house for everybody! And a lot of downs. Max and Lion, the future owners of Maxie's Car Wash, Pittsburgh, PA. I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Ken and Paula. Ken, what is keeping you busy these days? Oh, not really all that much, Mike. Uh, it's like wintertime in Michigan. The band's still playing. We've got 
decided to our, our latest recording projects are a little more ambitious than they originally were, so it's going to take a lot longer. So nothing to promote yet. All right. Well, maybe by the time this comes out, you'll have a new record out. Maybe. And Paula, what are the haps at Cinema Detroit? Um, well, we're still uh, showing movies seven days a week in uh, Midtown. We're on third between Willis and Alexandrine at 4126 3rd Street. And for the most updated features and showtimes, uh, people can visit cinemadetroit.com or .org. Either way will work. And um, that's the easiest way. There's also a little link up at the top if you want to join our email list to get the most current information sent to your inbox every week. So I'm, you know, went to, to Shanghai over the fall and, you know, people are like, oh, you know, tell me more about Detroit. And I was just like, well, Detroit only has one movie theater that is open every day of the week. And they could, they didn't believe me. They're like, Detroit's a huge city. What do you mean you only have one movie theater? I said, no, no, no. one movie theater that's open seven days a week and shows first run and classic films and that's it. All on two screens. One movie theater on, on two screens. One movie theater. And they just could not believe me. What can I tell you? That's why we did it. Because we were tired. We were tired of driving a long way. And we were also tired of seeing places like Cincinnati get movies that we wanted to see. And, um, yeah, it's a, it'll, it'll warp your mind if you think about it too much. Yeah. Well, bless you guys for doing it because it's essential. It's, oh, thank you so much. You're very kind. It's necessary. So what do you guys do? Do you just, like, hop on the subway and take that out to see movies out in the suburbs? I'm like, yeah, yeah, we hop on the subway. <laughs> Are you high? We take the queue line and then a bus after that. <laughs> yeah, I go. We have a subway that runs three miles long. <laughs> Where do you we'll start? Get, you know, we'll get there, Mike. We'll get there. The Magic Johnson's going to put up a multiplex downtown. And then I just laugh when people are like, I hear Detroit's really coming back. It's like there are good things about Detroit. Cinema Detroit is one of those. But yeah, our public transportation. I was Isn't like, that? when I heard we were getting. This this subway line or metro line on Woodward Avenue, I was like, okay, great. It's going to start downtown, and it's going to go all the way out to fucking Pontiac for the first leg of it, and then beyond that. When I heard that it was three miles long, I almost shit my pants. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like... Thank you, Dan. I, kind of, it. I, I go to my meetings and stuff. It's I, kind of like the people mover, uh -huh. you know? I, it's Oh, Yeah. It can serve that purpose instead of a long track. You can go to some like relatively inexpensive parking lots, park there, walk over to the people mover, take that to the queue line, and then go on from there and save like some money. <laughs> parking is super expensive. Like I've been seeing fifty dollars spaces. Oh god. Yeah, yeah, it's it's getting ridiculous. Yeah. Detroit is a parking lot now. Well, yeah. Pretty much. Detroit versus itself. <laughs> oh, yeah. well on that cheery note thank you guys for being on the show oh, thanks thank you so much for, for having me thanks Mike oh, love having you guys it's always a pleasure talking with you and this one was so much fun to talk about I had fun too and I was uh, happy talking with you guys 
So I would encourage people to please head on over to the website projection-booth.com where you find out more about today's episode. You also find links to Ken's band, to Paula's theater. You also find links to iTunes where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.